If you're a mom, you're a superhero. That's right, own it. We possess a unique superpower of intuition, a sixth sense for what our kids are up to, how they feel, what they want, and when they want it. Yep, it's amazing. I call this mom sense. Oftentimes, we are Googling for answers, joining Facebook groups, or relegating to taking unsolicited advice from our friends when all we have to do is listen to that voice inside us. No, not the one that's telling you you're fat. The other voice, the one that seems to know everything when it comes to your kids and leaves you feeling confident, empowered, purposeful, and all things hashtag mom goals. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm a mother of twin toddlers and a baby, double the fun plus one. And I can honestly say that now that I'm a mom, I feel like my life is just getting started. On my podcast, I interview industry experts and real life mamas on their mom sense experiences, tackling topics like how to teach kids to meditate, what it takes to have the marriage you've always dreamed of, and how to master your car makeup routine. Grab your latte, that's probably ice cold by now, and take a listen to That's Total Mom Sense. You know what the most trite advice is when it comes to babies and sleep? Honey, sleep when the baby sleeps. It makes me think of a meme I came across on Instagram that said, sure, and I'll do laundry when my baby does laundry and wash bottles when my baby washes bottles. When the baby sleeps, that's our only window of time to get all of the other umpteen things done that we have to do. One of the most polarizing and confusing topics for new moms is how to get your baby to sleep and to sleep train or not. There are some parents who are diehard believers in the Ferber method and others who prefer co-sleeping and others who fall somewhere in between. First and foremost, there is no right or wrong method. You do what is right for your baby and your family and your schedule. What I'm here to provide you with is knowledge. If you're a mom who's unsure of what to do um, to get your baby to go to sleep and sleep well, this is the episode for you. My goal is to keep things as objective as possible. As you know, I'm a journalist by trade. So I want to present you with all the facts and two very different perspectives um, so you can come out of this more aware and self-assured on how to handle sleep when it comes to you and your baby or babies. I am so excited to have two experts with me on the show today, Kelly Murray and Dr. Amber Price. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Thank you. Great. So today on our episode on That's Total Mom Sense, we're talking about babies and sleep. And I guess we want to just start from the very beginning. If you both could just introduce yourselves briefly. All right. Um, So my name is Kelly Murray. I reside in Chicago with my two preschoolers, husband and very large golden doodle. And I am a certified pediatric sleep consultant that helps families locally and worldwide obtain better sleep through supporting them through the sleep training process. And what I do is come up with a customized plan that fits their parenting philosophy and their child's personality so that they can feel comfortable with the methods that they're using, which will help them to remain committed and see sleep success. Hi, um, I'm Dr. Amber Price. I'm a pediatrician and a breastfeeding medicine specialist um, in Chicago. I have a private practice called Willow Pediatrics and Lactation, and it's a concierge-style direct primary care practice. So um, it's very different than a traditional practice in the sense that, you know, it's going back to the way medicine used to be, where patients have my direct cell phone number, and, you know, we're spending as much time as needed, you know, for the parents. And so kind of my perspective with both Um, How I practice pediatrics, you know, is really a blend of also my parenting style. So I merge like the evidence-based information that I have from my training, as well as um, my style as as like a parent. Um, So what I kind of consider my style is more of a child-led with gentle um, guidance from parents. Um, And so we work with families to, you know, help them in the development of their child. So let's just start from from the basics. Um, How important is sleep to a baby, a newborn especially, how much sleep should they be getting? So on average, a newborn um, should be sleeping 14 to 17 hours per day, you know, in a 24-hour period on a consistent basis to ensure that they're getting enough sleep for, you know, adequate growth and development. 
So most babies, you know, will, you know, have just very short periods of time that they're awake. So it's kind of like they eat, sleep and poop. And that's the main things that they do for those first couple of weeks. And, and how many times does a newborn feed? We say everyone, even if you're formula feeding to feed on demand, which means that when the baby's giving the hunger cues, you're feeding them, even if they've just fed a half hour before that. They're leading the ship with how often they need to eat. <laughs> right. And isn't it isn't so ironic how, you know, a newborn is getting 14 to 18 hours of sleep, but mom's completely sleep deprived? Well, it's yes. So <laughs> the reason for that is because the, the sleep cycle of a baby is so short, you know, they're able to cycle in and out of sleep. Whereas with adults, in order to go through a full sleep cycle, we need a lot more time you know, it's physiologic. That's the reason why parents are so sleep deprived and babies are not is because physiologically, they have very different sleep needs in terms of getting through an entire sleep cycle. Is the reason for their circadian rhythm being different from ours because they were in the womb and in that, you know, quote unquote, fourth trimester, they're still kind of adjusting to the outside world? Is that why? Yeah, it Yep, exactly. And one of the nice reasons um, that breastfed babies tend to get on a little bit different sleep, sleep cycle than formula fed babies is because when moms are nursing at night, she has melatonin that's in her system that gets into the breast milk that then helps baby to get synchronized with like, you know, day and night a little bit on a different time frame than a formula fed baby would. So anything you want to add about about newborns and sleep? Yeah, this is Kelly. I just wanted to add an interesting factoid about newborn sleep. As adults, only 25% of our sleep consists of REM sleep. And REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement. And there's a lot of work um, going on in the brain during this type of sleep. So what our brain is doing is taking in all the information from the day and storing what needs to be stored, discarding what doesn't, and creating new neural pathways to facilitate learning. So as adults, only 25% of our sleep is REM sleep, whereas with newborns, 50% is REM sleep. That's because they're taking in so much information throughout the day. And one thing to note too about the REM sleep, so as adults, when we're in REM sleep, our muscles are paralyzed so that we can't act out our dreams. Whereas with newborns, they haven't developed that yet, so their sleep is really restless. So a lot of clients that I work with will tell me that their newborns are restless sleepers. And I tell them that's actually a good thing. That means that they're getting a lot of REM sleep. One thing that I think moms constantly wonder is when can they put their baby on a schedule? What is the ideal um, age for that? Yeah, well, from a, um, a sleep consultant perspective, I usually don't put a baby on a clock schedule until they're closer to six to nine months. Mm -hmm. And at that point, they're ready to move to a two nap schedule. So that's really what dictates if you can use a clock to schedule their naps is if they're taking two naps. But before then, what I like to use are wake windows. So that's the amount of time that they can be awake in between naps. And it's really important to get the wake window correct because you want to put your baby down when they have enough fatigue. So they have enough motivation to fall asleep and stay asleep. But you don't want to put them down at a point where they're overtired. Because when their bodies are overtired, it, their bodies start to produce cortisol. That's because it's unnatural for humans to be overtired. So our body thinks that there must be some danger present. So it pumps itself full of cortisol and adrenaline so that they can flee the danger. So if babies get to that point where they're overtired, their bodies are producing simulating hormone, which makes it really challenging for them to fall asleep and stay asleep. Okay, makes sense. Um, Dr. Price, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, so um, with families in my practice, you know, everyone's always talking about like sleep and, you know, when's bedtime and things like that. And I always say, first of all, we don't even start talking about sleep until after the baby's a month old, right? Because I tell them like that first month is really like so much adaptability and you're kind of in survival mode. Right. You just do what you can for that first month, right? You're figuring things out. And then at the first month appointment, I will, you know, I don't ever talk about like sleep training or like a schedule. I talk about like, okay, let's start having like consistency and predictability because, you know, babies thrive on, you know, predictability, same way with adults. Um, and so we will talk about, you know, the most important aspect, you know, of sleep is usually like the, 
you know, the, um, the evening, right. I want to get that like going as soon as possible. So, you know, at the one month appointment, I'm like, okay, let's start establishing a bedtime routine, things that you're going to do every night around the same time, the same sequence of things. And I call it like, you know, the wind down. So, you know, if your sleep routine is going to be, you know, 30 minutes and you're going to start out with some like tummy time and, you know, putting pajamas on a massage and all that stuff. And then you're going to feed and, and you don't want to feed too close to bedtime because you don't want to have the baby to have an association with having to like, you know, feed at the breast or bottle feed immediately before going to sleep. Because the idea is to put them down when they're, you know, drowsy, but not completely zonked out milk drunk. And so we will have this like consistent, like bedtime routine. And then once we get that well established, then we will talk about establishing like the three naps during the day with the first, the most important one being that first morning one, since it's an extension of the night. Let's see, is there a certain amount of intake that a baby should be getting in order to be able to sleep a longer stretch? I talk a lot about like the physiologic norm. Okay. And so every baby is on their own, like developmental time frame. Um, you know, sleep, I view sleep as the same way of like, you know, your, um, you know, your friend's baby is going to walk and talk and, you know, feed themselves at different points in time than what your baby does. So, you know, I try to emphasize, like, don't compare, you know, if your baby's not quote unquote sleeping through the night by such and such age, right? Um, you know, it's actually quite normal for some babies to have multiple awakenings, even as, you know, old as like nine, 10 months. And the question of if it's, an abnormal behavior is, you know, what's happening when they're waking up? Are they waking up just to nurse and then fall right back to sleep? If so, then to me, that's not a problem because they physiologically needed those calories, you know, for their growth versus like, you know, there's, there's some breastfed babies who are cluster feeding and taking a lot of calories during the day. And then they're sleeping 10, 12 hour stretches at night because they're getting all their caloric needs during the day. There's other breastfed babies who are kind of like snackers basically all throughout the day and then some, you know, more at night. And so like if you have a baby who's kind of needing, you know, two to three feeds at night for calories, you know, I talk about like, you know, like really using your partner as a support where the mom isn't actually having to get up out of bed to feed the baby. You know, like the partner is kind of like bringing the baby in. We're doing sideline nursing. And then that way the mom doesn't really have to fully awake. And she's actually getting restful sleep. I mean, we have studies to show that breastfed or moms who breastfeed and co-sleep with their babies actually get more sleep, more restful sleep than some formula fed counterparts. Yeah. So like Amber, I like to look at this on a case by case um, basis. So I take into consideration a few different factors, one being the baby's weight. So um, the experts usually agree that typically if a baby is greater than 12 or 15 pounds, they should be able to make it through the night without feeding. So first I look at the baby's weight. Is it going to be safe to expect this baby to make it through the night without feeding? Mm -hmm. The second thing I look at is their independent sleep skills. So if the baby is able to put themselves to sleep at bedtime, then we can expect them to put themselves back to sleep overnight if they're waking up and not really needing to feed. So until we can teach them to put themselves to sleep at bedtime, we can't really expect them to sleep through the night without um, feeding if that's something that they associate with sleep. So if they're being fed to sleep, then through the night when they wake up in between sleep cycles, and a sleep cycle is about 90 minutes on average. And what happens is after each sleep cycle, there's a brief arousal and the baby and also adults, we do an environmental scan to make sure that our environment looks just like it did when we fell asleep. So if something's amiss, then it triggers a wake up, that fight or flight reflex. So it'd be like, so if a breastfed baby wakes up in the middle of the night and they're in their crib alone and the last thing they remembered was being mm -hmm. fed to sleep that's going to be alarming yeah and they're going to have a full wake up and then they're going to need to be fed back to sleep so it's really important um you know if a baby's waking up excessively throughout the night and not necessarily needing the feedings is to look whether or not they do have the independent sleep skills to put themselves to sleep the other thing I look at is if the baby's breasts are bottle fed. Yeah. So with breastfeeding, of course, we can't um, we can't measure their caloric intake during the day. 
So um, I usually give those babies a little bit more leeway and tell mom, like, let's see what happens once we teach the baby to fall asleep independently, how often they're waking up, if they're actually feeding, like taking a full feed, or are they just wanting to do a little bit of non-nurturative suckling in order to fall back to sleep. So I read the book 12 Hours by 12 Weeks by Susie Giordano. Um, She's a child coach in D.C. And she also had twins. And this is something that is so unique to my situation. But I had twins. And then 18 months later, um, my third baby. And with the twins, um, I feel like I was just thrown into the deep end um, of motherhood. And, you know, from day one, I, I had them on a schedule um, or a routine, if you will, um, where the nurses really helped me um, because they were um, supplemented um, you know, at the hospital. And um, so I breastfed and supplemented them, tandem fed them, you know, every which way, um, you know, they would they would take whatever was given to them. <laughs> and um, and I did have a night nurse who helped me at night. And one thing we did was, um, I love how you brought up weight. So it was only when my pediatrician approved that, um, you know, they can, we can start kind of stretching out their feedings. We did that. And what I was really um, intrigued to find is that, you know, of course, a baby's stomach is growing um, uh, every, every day. Um, but if you want to just split it up into every three months and so their intake increases over time. So, you know, a newborn, um, maybe only can take an ounce at a time and, um, a three month old can take more than that. And it's really a matter of mathematics is what, what the book, um, taught me. So if there's 24 hours in a day, um, uh, there's also 24 ounces that a baby um, takes to really feel sa- uh, satiated. I'd, I'd say maybe 18 to 24 ounces of milk a day is, you know, uh, a good amount of milk for for a baby. And so a newborn can only drink an ounce at a time. So they're basically nursing around the clock. But a three-month-old can drink three ounces at a time. So they have eight feeds. And a six-month-old can drink possibly six ounces at a time. And so they have four feeds. And so it really is a matter of math. Um, and I love that. And so what I did was I tried to get the four feedings of their six ounces to be during the day, whether it was um, being breastfed or pump milk or um, their formula. But I was trying to get those those 24 ounces to be before I put them down to sleep at um 8 p.m. and then before they awoke at 8 a.m. And of course, it it doesn't happen so seamlessly. So that 3 a.m. feed, that middle of night feed was the hardest one. And so what we did was um, my night nurse and I, we just tried to pull out different soothing mechanisms from our arsenal, whether it was a pacifier or padding, or we try not to rock because then that just creates another dependency, but it was mostly pacifier and padding to get them to go back to sleep and stretch out that feed. And so that 3 a.m. became 4 a.m., became 5 a.m., became 6 a.m. And so then it was like a longer stretch at night with one of, well, so I have boy girl twins that, that really worked for my son. My daughter, um, she really, she wanted to be near us. So when she turned nine months, um, that kind of went all out the window because we had we had done this whole tactic um, around the six month mark. And then um, we co-slept with her. And so we co-slept with her till she was about a year old. And then I feel like she just transitioned herself. It was amazing. Um, she went from sleeping um, in bed with my husband and I to um, the crib in our room to a uh, crib in their own room um, with her brother and and was fine. I mean, there was no fight or or crying or any of that. It was just a very, very easy transition. And I feel like we just paid attention to both of our kids' cues. They were very different. But eventually they ended up in their own rooms and they're sleeping through the night. And, you know, that happened, I'd say, from 12, 13 months onwards, um, and they're about two and a half now. So that's my story. I want to hear um, what you both did as moms with your kids and, you know, how you actually incorporated um, your own mom sense, your your intuition, um, along with your expertise in the field 
on what you did with your kids. So um, with both of my children, I actually started out co-sleeping. I um, did it more out of necessity, but I also enjoyed it. So I did read Dr. Sears' attachment parenting book, and it made a lot of sense to me that we should be very responsive to our baby's cries. And as a result, the only way I could get my children to fall asleep without crying was to bring them into bed with me. And you know what? It worked wonderfully for my daughter. So we co-slept until my son was born, um, and she was close to two years old. And I have no idea how my husband transitioned her to her crib, but he did it and it worked. (laughs) And I think it was rather easy or else I would have heard about it. Um, But with my son around nine months, our co-sleeping situation just became unenjoyable. So he was up almost every two hours wanting a feed because I was feeding him to sleep um, initially. And then throughout the nights, he would want to feed in between every sleep cycle. So what I would do is, um, unfortunately, I was unable to breastfeed, so I had to feed him express breast milk. But I would bring um, bottles of express breast milk up into my room, and I would put them on ice in a champagne bucket. (laughs) And I would just pop the bottles in his mouth all night long. And I would wake up, and there were empty bottles everywhere. And I was just really confused as to what happened throughout the night. All I knew is that we got through it. So I was in survival mode. And um, it really affected me um, emotionally. I was very irritable. I was you know, yelling at my husband every morning, telling him that he was a horrible person because he was, he was able to sleep through all the wake-ups. And I was the one that was getting unfragmented or fragmented sleep. Yeah. I had a toddler. I had very little patience for her. I was just miserable all around. And so was my son. He was very, very clingy. He was um, behind on some of his developmental milestones. And so at his nine-month well visits, my physician asked about sleep. And I just busted out in tears because I was getting very little at that point. And so he was the one to convince me to sleep train. So he presented the evidence to me. I'm like Amber, very evidence um, based. I used to work as a medical device sales rep before becoming a sleep consultant. So I like to use evidence to guide my parenting um, decisions as well as my own personal philosophy and what feels right to me as a mom. But um, he's the one who showed me the evidence and convinced me that I wasn't going to damage my child and that everyone was going to be better as a result of us getting the sleep that we needed. So, of course, um, he recommended the cried out approach. I feel like a lot of physicians who don't have um, a lot of education on sleep, it just depends on the physician. But I hear from a lot of my clients that their physicians are like, oh, just put them in their bed, shut the door and, um, you know, they'll be fine. (laughs) They'll figure it out. And I knew that that wasn't something that I was going to be able to tolerate. Now I'm going from co-sleeping to just putting my child in their crib by themselves So I did a ton of research and I found this method called sleep sense and I gravitated to it because it allowed me to be in the room with my son as he was learning to put himself to sleep. And I was able to watch him and offer him comfort and support as needed. So um, I bought the plan and um, to my disbelief within three days, He was falling asleep peacefully and sleeping through the night. It was pretty amazing. And it completely just changed my life. I was happier. I had um, more patience and tolerance. I felt amazing. I was enjoying motherhood again because I wasn't absolutely exhausted. And the best thing about it is I saw a huge difference in my son. He was eating better. He was hitting his developmental milestones more quickly. He was able to be more independent during the day where I wasn't having to hold him every second of the day. And um, it just really changed our family dynamic and brought harmony back to our lives. So soon after sleep training him, I discovered that you can um, obtain a certification in the Sleep Sense program from the founder, Dana Olbermann. 
So I just um, jumped at it because I wanted to help other women who were in a similar position where they were really nervous about sleep training and um, wanted to use a more supportive approach to obtain better sleep. That was about three years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. I've helped over 500 families, and um, you know, I, I just find that when it comes to approaching sleep, that you have to do what feels best to you. And if you're experiencing a problem with sleep, that there's so many different methods out there of sleep training. And I'm sure that you would find one that fits your parenting philosophy. And it's not something that you have to really tolerate and survive. So tell us about what the essence of sleep training is. Yeah, so really, if you boil it down, um, what it is, is allowing your baby to learn to put themselves to sleep, to fall asleep, without the use of external props. So a prop could be something such as rocking to sleep, feeding to sleep, bouncing to sleep, holding to sleep, and the list goes on and on. I've heard some crazy ways that parents um, have to resort to in order to put their babies to sleep. Mm-hmm. So it's just teaching them how to use their internal skills to fall asleep, which is something that's natural. You know, they're already falling asleep. They just need to learn a different way of doing so. And as a result, that allows your baby to obtain more uninterrupted sleep. And once a baby is able to do that from a physiological perspective where they don't need to wake up and eat, if they can get that uninterrupted sleep, it's really what's best for their physical, mental, and emotional well-being and development. And so what it is is that, um, like I described later, it's in between sleep cycles, there's little wake-ups. And if the baby notices that something's different in their environment, then they wake up. So it'd be similar to you falling asleep in your bed and you wake up on the front lawn, you'd be pretty freaked out. Okay, great. And um, what are some of the tools that a baby uses to fall back asleep? Is it like a lovey or a pacifier or is it not even external in that way? So um, with my method, I have parents in the room with their baby and they're watching their baby put themselves to sleep. And some parents tell me that they really don't notice the baby self-soothing. They just put their baby down, they roll over and fall asleep. Other babies will suck their fingers and thumbs. Some babies will, um, you know, rub their pajamas or the crib sheets. Other babies will move around, shake their head a little bit. So there's various ways that they um, learn to self-soothe. And according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, they really shouldn't have anything in their crib other than themselves. Right. under a year. So I really don't promote the use of a lovey unless a parent feels comfortable with that. I leave it up to them. Um, but they don't necessarily need a lovey in order to learn to fall asleep. So just like us, they can just lay in their bed and fall asleep with their own internal skill sets. Yeah, very cool. Okay, Dr. Price, um, could you tell us about your experience and a little bit about um, attachment parenting? I had my first daughter the day after uh, finals, my first year of medical school. Um, I had my mother-in-law who was our main caregiver. And so I would study at home and, you know, nurse the baby in between, you know, studying and things like that. And so she actually started out, um, we had a Moses basket, you know, in our queen size bed for a little bit, but then it just, I wasn't really getting that good of sleep. And, you know, the queen bed just wasn't quite big enough for all of us. So I actually transitioned her to her crib fairly early didn't really have any sleep issues with her. Um, And so I kind of did more like traditional parenting, I would say. Um, And then with my second daughter, I had her as a resident. And, you know, as a resident, I was working, you know, 80 plus hours a week. Um, You know, we would be on call for 30 plus hours. You know, my second child was a very avid nurser and wanted to nurse all the time. And so I was away from her, you know, quite a bit. So I actually co-slept with her um, from the very beginning. Um, because that was a way for me to kind of like reconnect. Um, And that was the most amount of time that I had, you know, with her was, you know, during our sleep time. And, you know, she often nursed frequently at night. So we, you know, co-slept with her. And then when she got um, about a year and a half, my oldest decided that she wanted to join the family bed. At that point, bought a king bed. And then we had all four of us in the bed. And then when it was no longer kind of working for our family, um, and I felt like I wasn't getting good sleep anymore, I then um, transitioned the girls to a sibling bed. 
And so now the girls have, you know, a sibling bed. And then my husband and I have our bed back, you know, kind of like for our family, the sleep environment has been fluid and changed as you know, our family has changed. And, you know, the needs of our family has changed. When you had mentioned about like the the 24 ounces per day rule, Mm -hmm. that's like somewhat true and somewhat not. Um, And so like the caloric needs of a baby, um, you know, we usually calculate about 100 kilocalories per kg. And an ounce of formula and breast milk is around 20 kilocalories. Now, you know, some babies who are fortifying and, you know, are on formula and things like that, we can make, you know, an ounce of um, formula or an ounce of breast milk have more than 20 kilocalories if they're having issues with like volume requirements. Um, So instead of looking at like necessarily the weight to determine when a baby should be able to sleep through the night, I'm kind of calculating, you know, what is their minimum volume, right? And so... Like Kelly was saying, you know, she was trying to get like her one son to, or was it you that was trying to take, um, have your twins to kind of take most of their calories during the day, because, you know, whatever that predetermined volume is, that's just what you need to get done in a 24 hour period. So, you know, if they're sleeping more, obviously you have less time, you know, in a 24 hour period to get the same number of calories. Yeah. Um, And the other very interesting thing is that when babies are feeding directly from the breast, there's actually a lot of um, changes that happen within the breast milk because there's feedback from the baby's saliva that's going to dictate the composition of the milk. Yes. And so, you know, a breastfed baby who is exclusively breastfed from the breast, volume-wise, is still probably taking around, you know, 24, maybe, you know, 28 um, ounces per day, the right. same as what they were at three months versus a formula-fed baby, you know, sometimes is taking like 40, you know, 42 ounces a day. Because, you know, the composition of the formula is stagnant. Um, It doesn't change to like the specific needs of the baby. Whereas a baby who is feeding directly from the breast, the breast milk composition is changing um, Mm -hmm. to specifically accommodate the needs of the baby. And so, you know, it's not a volume thing. It's based off of like, what is the composition in the milk? And so if the milk composition is not exactly right, then you have to have a higher volume to reach caloric needs. That makes so much sense. And I remember my lactation consultant uh, explaining that to me um, that like early on the milk might be a little watery, but think of um, when the baby's older, the milk turns into like this thick cream, if you will. Um, It it just becomes denser and um, way more satiating, even though the uh, number of ounces would remain the same. Um, And then what's also cool is when, when baby gets sick, Um, you know, one thing that I was just, just really fascinated by was, um, the composition of my milk changed, um, when, when the baby was sick, because like you said, um, when his saliva, um, would, uh, I guess, touch me and interact with my body, um, it would just kind of go into high gear and understand that, okay, there's certain, um, I guess, vitamins that are deficient here. And so we're trying to fortify him with that. And so the composition and even color of the milk would change when he was sick. Yeah. And it's really interesting women who, who breastfeed beyond a year, you know, which is considered extended breastfeeding, the milk composition almost goes back to similar to what, what it was when it was colostrum. So they need, you know, just very small volumes to get a lot of nutrients. And so, you know, there's more, um, there's actually more fat in human breast milk than what there is whole cow milk. So when, you know, moms are asking me about like, oh, do I need to switch over to cow milk now that the baby's a year old? I'm like, no, I'm like, if, you know, if you want to stop breastfeeding, you certainly can. But if you're, you know, thinking you need to switch to cow milk because that's what you're supposed to do at a year. No, actually your breast milk is way more nutritious than what the cow milk is. Right, right, right. Um, Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what attachment parenting entails? Yeah. So attachment parenting is kind of more, you know, child-led, meaning that you're kind of doing everything based off of specifically more of the needs of the child and then kind of like neglecting the needs of the parents. So, um, you know, with everything, I think there's, it's best to kind of take approaches from each, each kind of modality, right? Um, You know, Uh, families who choose to be like extreme, um, you know, attachment parenting, you know, like any little cry they're attending to, you know, they're feeding on demand, they're baby wearing, you know, everything is centered around the child. And then the needs of, you know, the family is kind of like secondary to that. Um, And so, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I consider myself an attachment parenting to some extent, but then, you know, 
you also have to make sure that you're taking care of the caregivers as well. So I tell the families like, you know, you can't take care of anyone if you yourself is not taken care of first. So we have to make sure that you're, you know, in a good position and, you know, well rested and things like that, um, you know, before you can kind of take care of your baby. Um, but it tends to be like the attachment parenting, you know, you know, tends to do the, you know, on-demand feeding, they're co-sleeping, they are cloth diapering, they're extended, you know, breastfeeding. So they will nurse until the, you know, child decides that they are done nursing. Um, and, you know, in America, you know, the average age of, you know, a child like being weaned is age three months, which, you know, is probably not, um, you know, we probably shouldn't be surprised by that because that's when most women have to go back to work. Um, but worldwide, the average weaning age, um, if you let a child decide, is age four. Um, and oh. you know, yeah, many, many um, families who have um, allowed their child to nurse until they were ready and almost without fail, they all wean around age four or right before age four. Um, my first child self-weaned, you know, a couple weeks before she turned four. Um, and, you know, my three and a half year old is, is still nursing as well. And I expect that she will probably wean a little bit after four just because of, you know, her attachment to nursing. Um, and so, you know, it's again, child led. So you kind of let them decide, you know, when they're going to do things, you know, the same way with like, you know, introduction of solids, a lot of families who do the attachment parenting, you know, are doing um, baby led weaning. So again, it's more of like the um, child led approach versus like the parent led approach. Um, okay, I want to just kind of uh, spell it out for our listeners. Um, what are the the pros and cons of each kind of philosophy? So we'll start with Kelly. What's the stigma behind, you know, sleep training and CIO, cry it out? And, and what are some of the benefits too? So tell us both. Yeah, so I think um, most families who are nervous to sleep train or want to avoid sleep training altogether, it's because of the crying. And I understand I was the same way. No one likes to hear your baby cry. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And that's because we're hardwired to feel that way. Um, a baby's cry is supposed to elicit that response in us. And in moms, it can be almost like a physical response when your baby cries. That's so that we take care of their needs. And I completely agree if your baby cries and needs something, you need to attend to them. However, when it comes to sleep training, you have to look at it as though your baby doesn't necessarily need you to put them to sleep. They may want you to put them to sleep, but they don't really need it. And so when your baby's crying for you to put them to sleep, you have to allow them to voice their frustration in learning this new skill set. We're asking them to learn a new strategy for putting themselves to sleep while they're tired. So it'd be like someone asking you to learn Latin right before you're ready to go to bed. You're going to be pretty frustrated. <laughs> and yeah. so you're going to cry. And you know what? It's okay for our babies and our children to feel big emotions. We don't necessarily want to silence them. Mm. So I think when it comes, you know, to sleep training, you just have to change your um, mindset on the crying and look at it more as your baby is protesting the fact that you're asking them to put themselves to sleep. And they will learn over time, okay, mom is not going to put me to sleep. So I need to learn how to do it on my own. Um, but so what are... I guess the the benefits of sleep training, why do so many parents swear by it? Yeah, well, I think it allows the baby and themselves to get uninterrupted sleep, which is really good for everyone's um, physical, emotional, and mental well-being. There's so much research out there today that points to the benefits of sleep. Um, if you look at the benefits for you know our children, it helps them to learn. It helps them to grow. 75% of our growth hormone is actually excreted while we sleep. 
It helps with their behavior. So I even notice in my own kids, if they're they're three and five, if they're deficient by even a half hour the next day, they are super cranky yeah. and no fun to be around. You know, I don't even think they like to be around themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's because um, when we're sleep deprived, our body, again, thinks that there must be some danger. And so our amygdala, which controls our fear response, is um, overstimulated so that we can respond to any abnormal stimulus in a very um, more um, abrupt way. Mm-hmm. And so that's why every little thing that's out of the ordinary, we respond to in a more emotional way. I think that the parents that I work with that sleep train their babies, even if their baby is a happy baby, they tell me after sleep training that their baby's even happier. And then also when it comes to the parents, I mean, being a mom is very demanding. And in order to meet those demands the next day, you have to feel well rested. And um, if you're getting, you know, fragmented sleep, it's really hard to feel your best because your brain isn't rebooting overnight. You know, you're going to be hypersensitive. It's going to wear on your patience, your tolerance. So you getting good sleep as a parent is going to also benefit your child because you can be the best parent that you can be. Uh, could you educate us on the various types of, of sleep training? Because um, I think Ferber Method is the one that became the most popularized, um, but there's so many more out there um, like Sleep, Lens, sleep Sense, um, as you mentioned, what you're certified in. So um, how many different types are there? So there's a lot out there, but I think you can um, basically categorize them as four different methods. They all can fit into a category. Mm -hmm. So the first I would call fading, which is also known as the no cry sleep solution. So that's where you're still using the baby's prop to help them to fall asleep, but you're shortening the duration and the amount of usage of that prop so that they can slowly learn to put themselves to sleep on their own. So for instance, if it usually takes you 15 minutes to rock your baby to sleep, the first night of using the fading method, you may um, rock your baby to sleep for 10 minutes. Or if you're co-sleeping, you would have your baby in your bed still, but you would move a little further away. Um, The other method would be the chair method or staying in their room. So Sleep Sense uses this method. So this is where you're putting your baby in their crib awake and then you're offering comfort as needed. So you could be very responsive and you can watch your baby to see how um, frustrated they are and jump right in if you feel your baby is escalating. Or if you see that your baby's working on putting themselves to sleep, but they're still crying, but they're, they're trying to figure it out, they're just frustrated, you can um, just sit there and watch and jump in as needed. So that's the chair method. And with the chair method, you slowly wean yourself out of the room. Um, the next method is called, um, would be graduated extinction. So it's very similar to Ferber. So that's where you put your baby in their crib and you walk out and you go in um, you know, every so often. Typically you would choose a time that feels comfortable for you in terms of how long you're going to wait before you respond to your baby. So some people may wait five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and you just go in and out and offer reassurance. And then um, the other method would be um, the cried out method. So basically extinction. That's where you put your baby in their crib, you walk out, and you let them figure figure it out for themselves, and you don't provide any reassurance or comfort. And I think all of the sleep training methods work and even cried out has been proven to not be detrimental to your baby's um, development and attachment. So I think the key is to find a method that you're going to be able to commit to that you feel comfortable with and also look at your baby to determine what type of support you think that they need and what's going to serve them. So some babies I work with will have the parents in the room with the baby to start out, but the baby just doesn't want to be bothered. They'll almost like shoo the parents away when they're trying to comfort them physically. So if that's the, if that occurs, then I get them out of the room and use more of a graduated extinction approach. 
Okay. And um, due to sleep regression or, you know, our babies get sick and there's so, so many different factors at play. If you're traveling or what have you, um, you kind of have to push reset and start over. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. It all depends on the baby. Right. But usually with sickness, um, they do need some more comforts because they're feeling uncomfortable and it's just hard for them to get comfortable and put themselves to sleep. So even if your baby is sleep trained, you can still give them more comfort at bedtime to help them to fall asleep. Um, I actually, I shouldn't admit this as a sleep trainer because um, most um, sleep consultants are anti-co-sleeping um, and I do agree it is you know, dangerous. It does present a lot of risks. But when my children are sick, I do still bring them into bed with me. And once they feel better, I put them back in their beds and they go back to falling asleep independently. So you can go back to using props, even if your baby is sleep trained, if um, if they're sick. You just have to be careful um, as far as how long you use those props so you don't create a new habit. It usually takes about three nights to create a new habit. So what I would do is maybe sleep with them for a night or two. And then by the third night, they're usually feeling better. Then they put them back into their bed and they fall asleep independently. The same thing with traveling. You know, it's a new environment. It's going to be um, challenging for them to feel comfortable enough to put themselves to sleep. So um, if the trip is short, you can just resort to your props to put them to sleep. Because um, it doesn't really make sense to work on getting them to feel comfortable if you're away for a weekend. But say your trip is a week. Um, what you could do is just redo sleep training while you're on vacation. That way you don't create a new habit that mm -hmm. you need to break when you get home. So now about attachment parenting and why someone might feel that's a fit for them. Yeah. So I think that, um, like I said, typically the, you know, the, the, the people who tend to be gentle parenting, you know, they again, it's, it's more of the child love. There's actually a, a whole branch of us physicians who do what's called like gentle parenting um, and gentle parenting and attachment parenting kind of go hand in hand. Um, and it's really like meeting the needs of the child, but then also treating the child like as if they were almost like your peer and not like your child. You know what I mean? So, you know, you're not scolding. You're like, you know, if, you know, if you have a colleague that's doing something that, you know, you don't like, you, you know, you say to them, oh, you know, you, you discuss it with them like adult to adult. And that's kind of the same way with like attachment and gentle parenting is that we are like meeting the child at like each of their developmental milestones um, versus like our own milestones and on our own needs. Right, right, right. Um, and so if you can both kind of discuss what the similarities are and clear up any confusion about why sleep training and um, attachment parenting are so dissimilar. Um, so tell us like the parallels and commonalities that one wouldn't um, know at first glance. Um, so I think, you know, regardless of whether you're attachment parenting or you're doing the cry it out method, we are all attached to our children, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we all meet the needs of our children. We just do it in different ways. Could you share a mom sense moment that you had um, where you really trusted that innate sixth sense that you have um, and it didn't steer you wrong? Yeah, I could take this one. Um, so I would have to say when I decided to sleep train my son, Brayden. So I did subscribe more to an attachment parenting philosophy before I decided to sleep train. And I still do believe in a lot of um, the concepts that, concepts that are taught in attachment parenting. Um, so if you look at Dr. Sears philosophy, he believes in the seven B's. So those would be bonding, breastfeeding, baby wearing, balance. Um, so balancing your needs with the baby, bed sharing, um, beware of baby trainers and believe in your baby's voice. Mm. So, um, you know, I still believe that you need to bond with your baby. Breastfeeding is important. You can breastfeed and sleep train. You just need to separate the feeding and sleeping so that they're not associated and your baby can fall asleep independently. Baby wearing is great. I think it's a wonderful way of um, bonding with your baby. I even use it um, during sleep training to help a baby fall asleep when they're having a hard time napping. 
balance. Of course, that's um, one of the benefits of sleep training is that you're able to balance your needs and your babies by ensuring that you're getting the sleep you need to be your best. But of course, you know, as a sleep trainer, um, we don't promote bed sharing just because that is a sleep prop. And um, as it goes without saying, we believe in baby trainers. We are baby trainers. Um, but, um, you know, like I said, I did really subscribe to that philosophy. And I was afraid um, to train my, my baby to fall asleep. And it was really impacting my health, his health, and um, my family's well-being. So I think my mom sense moment is when my pediatrician sat me down and weighed the pros and cons of sleep training. And I realized that um, any of the crying that my son was going to have to endure during sleep training was a small price to pay for all the benefits that my family would reap. You know, even though I was really before that time, just dead set against sleep training. And so that's when my mom's sense um, kicked in. It's like, okay, obviously this is not working for my family. <laughs> and there's research to show that it's not harmful. I have to at least give it a shot and see how it pans out. And I'm so glad I did, obviously. I mean, it changed my family for the better. I would I would say my son would probably still be in bed with me today wanting um, <laughs> a sip of his sippy cup <laughs> every two hours if I didn't make a change. And then also it led me to this fabulous new career that I have to help other families restore harmony in their their lives. That's so inspiring. Wow. And uh, Dr. Price, if you could share um, a mom sense moment you had. Yeah. So mine's not really related with sleep. It's more of like my aha moment when I was like, you know, you really can't, you know, parent each child the same way. So um, my oldest was recently diagnosed about a year ago with ADHD. And, um, you know, I realized that, you know, instinctively, I kind of knew what was going on, even though no one else kind of knew. Um, And then once we were able, you know, once we had a diagnosis and got her on a good treatment plan and everything, you know, I've, I've learned over time that, you know, I have to follow my instincts with what what parenting style works for her, because it's very different than the parenting style that works, you know, for my neurotypical three and a half year old. Um, And, you know, I'm having to do different parenting styles simultaneous, you know, when my kids are together. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. And that's good advice for any new mom um, who's having her second or third or so on, um, that each kid is going to be different. So it's not going to be a cookie cutter approach with, with each of them. Right. And that's why I think it's important, like, you know, it's good to read books and things like that. But I've I've found that there's there doesn't seem to be like one like so-called training method or sleep training that works for every single baby. Right. And so kind of with everything, I think taking a blend of things that work for your particular child from like the fervor method, the cry it out, the, um, um, you know, more of the gentle sleep training and kind of taking those aspects that work for your individual baby can kind of make them the perfect, like sleep hygiene environment. Um, mm-hmm. They can get the best sleep. So, you know, a lot of the families I work with, you know, we will again, kind of talk all about this, you know, sleep hygiene and setting up good habits from the beginning. Um, so, you know, we will talk about not having that sleep association with like feeding immediately before sleep. Right. Um, And, you know, when the babies are starting to wake up and they're waking up, not just for feeding, but for other reasons, and they're having issues going to sleep, you know, I'll tell families, okay, you need to decide, you know, for you, is it 10 minutes that you can stand to hear your baby cry um, and you're not going to completely lose your mind? Okay, so decide what your time frame is. And then, you know, we have like a couple different modalities where it's kind of like the, the step up you know, when we're trying to get them to go back to sleep where, you know, you start with the most gentle thing first, where maybe you're just going into the room and you're like, you know, rubbing their back, um, you know, and then if that doesn't work, you know, if, if your 10 minutes is your maximum amount and you have like three different modalities that you're going to try, you know, for about like three minutes, you know, you can try each, each thing. So you're going to have three minutes of the rubbing their back. And if that doesn't work, you're going to escalate up a little bit. And then maybe you're going to, you know, kind of start, um, you know, singing to the baby, you know, and then if that doesn't work, you know, you're going to go to your next thing. And the absolute last resort should be like picking them up, 
right? Um, but if you get to a point where, you know, your 10 minutes are at your max and you can't handle them crying anymore, then it's time for, you know, you to pick them up, right? Because babies also pick up on, you know, their caregivers, um, stress and adrenaline and things like that. And so if the parent is super stressed where they're trying to do this cry it out method, then the baby's going to pick up on that. Um, Good so point. just figure out, you know, what those things are going to be and then the consistency. So, you know, when we're doing the um, kind of the sleep hygiene at night and the sleep routine, you know, we're replicating that for all those three naps too, mm-hmm. because I tell the families, you know, I want them to have an association with sleep for this particular order of things. So we, we talk about like sleep association kind of as a bad thing, like, oh, if you nurse your baby to sleep, you know, then they're going to have an association with nursing. That's true. But then I want to use that same tactic for the positive things. So, you know, if you have your routine of doing X, Y, and Z, and you do that every time it's time for the baby to go to sleep, whenever the baby has those things done in that sequence, they're going to instinctively know, okay, it's time for me to settle down and go to sleep. It's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. What is a product you're loving right now? So there's a couple different products that I am loving right now. So um, the first one is the Slumber Pod. So what it is, it's a tent that you put over your baby's pack and play. And it's great for traveling because it makes the pack and play pitch dark. Mm, wow. We all know that babies sleep best in a dark environment because there's less stimulation and also our circadian rhythms work off of sunlight. So when the sun sets, it sends a signal to our brain to um, produce melatonin. And when the sun rises, it sends a signal to our brain to suppress melatonin and produce cortisol. So by keeping it dark when you're traveling, that's going to help your baby sleep better. And also, they're not going to see, if they're in the same room as you, they're not going to see their favorite person laying there and want to be up all night. Mm -hmm. And the other benefit is that you could put your baby to bed and you can still, like, watch television or read a book or have the lights on while your baby's sleeping. Like, yeah. So I have an awesome hair I've got to share with moms because it's been life-changing for me. Yes. I have long, thick, curly hair. Well, it's wavy. And um, I go to great lengths to cut down my blow dry time. And I went as far as I bought the Dyson, that $400 um, blow dryer. (laughs) And it didn't help, but it hasn't helped as much as this $37 product that I found on Instagram. It's called the Bear Suma, and it's a brush and blow dryer in one. Mm. And I can blow dry my hair in 10 minutes, and I don't even have to touch uh, straight iron. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Um, and then Dr. Price, you want to just tell us what the vitamin D, um, capsule is? I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So it's just, um, it's D drops, um, and it's for the baby, you know, babies, um, who are exclusively breastfed need vitamin D daily, unless mom is taking 6,400 international units daily, which if you're like most busy moms, usually you don't get your vitamins, but you always make sure that your kids get theirs. Um, and so (laughs) a one drop, um, it's made of um, the D3, which is a better form of vitamin D than what the D2 is. It's more available. Um, and then it just has coconut oil. Um, and so those are the only two ingredients. And it's a single drop on the breast once daily. So you can put it on your breast. You can put it on your finger and have the baby suck. You can just administer it directly to their mouth. Um, I like this so much more uh, or so much better than um, like the Infamil brand that you get from, you know, Walmart or Target because that one the volume is one ml so it's a lot larger volume for the babies to have to take there's a lot of additives and it doesn't taste very well versus the D drops um, is a single drop tasteless um, you know very natural it has just the coconut oil and the vitamin D only in it so I love that um, for my breastfeeding moms my go-to is the um, mother love nipple um, cream it is, um, you know, safe to, to nurse with breastfeeding. Um, it really helps with like the soreness. Um, also, if you have any like nipple trauma, um, I prefer that to the lanolin um, only because lanolin is made from sheep wool. Um, and, you know, with sheep wool, we're not sure of like the pesticides and things that could be in there. Um, and even though they say lanolin is safe for, you know, mothers to nurse with it, um, I just prefer to use more of a natural product. Absolutely. That's great. Um, and I am a D drop believer also. Um, my pediatrician prescribed it and 
yeah, it just, it's so easy peasy for, for the baby. <laughs> Let's not forget our quote of the day. Um, so what is a quote that you both live by? Well, I know that this is, um, again, sleep related, but um, I just love the quote, sleep better, live better. I don't know who coined it, but um, I saw it and I've adapted it as my mantra for my business. I feel like if everyone's sleeping better, we're all going to live better. Yes. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, so when you're a first time mom, you know, we, we read up on SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And, um, I feel like there's so many different things related to that and co-sleeping. And so we'd like to hear a doctor's perspective on what safe sleeping habits are for co-sleeping. Um, something that would obviously not cause SIDS. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, what I talk about with families who, you know, are wanting to bed share or co-sleep, um, you know, I always say that a safe sleep environment um, always starts with a healthy full-term baby, okay? So I kind of have an algorithm that I go through, and, you know, the first thing is that the baby has to be healthy and full-term, okay? If mm -hmm. not, we can't even talk any further about you co-sleeping, that baby needs to be in the crib. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the next thing we, we talk about is, um, you know, making sure that, um, you know, the mom is not on any medications that could, you know, cause drowsiness or impairment, right? You know, if she's on any sedatives, if, um, you know, she has any alcohol use or drug use, anything like that, that's obviously a, a contraindication for, for co-sleeping. Um, you know, the other thing is if, um, you know, the mom is obese at all, you know, um, that we're not able to co-sleep as well because there's a risk of, you know, rolling over, um, you know, on baby being a little bit on the larger side. Um, and so, you know, I make sure that first of all, families kind of like meet this criteria before we even discuss co-sleeping. The other big thing is that the baby needs to be exclusively breastfed and needs to be exclusively breastfed on demand. Um, and so the reason for this is um, one of the reasons, um, you know, there's actually been studies to show that breastfed babies um, have a lower risk of SIDS. Um, and my hypothesis for that is because, you know, when a breastfed baby is co-sleeping with the mom, you know, their side, they're, you know, right next to one another. And, you know, James McKenna, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's an anthropologist out of Notre Dame that has done a lot of um, research and his whole kind of career is devoted to like mom baby sleep. Um, he has some excellent, excellent um, research that he's done. And um, he's looked at like the sleep levels of mom and baby. And he, um, you know, when mom and baby are sleeping side by side, you know, their, um, you know, heart rates regulate, their, uh, or their respirations rate, um, you know, are very similar. And so like, as mom is exhaling, you know, carbon dioxide next to baby that um, allows, like that gives the baby, um, like a message to like, oh, I need to take a breath. You know, my theory is that if we were able to do like studies to look at like families who co-sleep versus not, um, you know, that there would be less risk of sudden infant death for families who are co-sleeping safely because of like specific mechanisms, right? Like, um, you know, feeding on demand. First of all, mom and baby are kind of in sync with the way okay. um, you know, like um, the respiratory pa uh, patterns, um, mom is attuned to like hearing baby stir, you know, baby is getting these like um, very brief, um, like arousals just for like nursing. And so they never fall into like a really deep sleep versus like babies, you know, who are formula fed and away from, you know, the parents, you know, they're in a little bit like deeper sleep state, right? And so right. in a really deep sleep state as a newborn is not a good thing. You know what I mean? They need to like be arousable. Um, and that is like a protective mechanism to prevent sudden infant death. Thank you so much, uh, Kelly and Dr. Price for being on That's Total Mom Sense. Now, where can our listeners find you? Yeah, so I'm here, I'm local in Chicago and I'm near the downtown area. My practice is Willow Pediatrics and Lactation. Um, the website is www.willow.willowp.com. P is in Paul, E, D is in David, S is in Sam.com. Um, our phone number is area code 312-869-9556. Um, like I said, I have a membership-based pediatric practice where, you know, I take care of newborns up to, you know, as 
you know, my oldest right now in the practice is only about 10, um, but I can take care of patients, you know, as even as long or as far as when they get into college. Mm -hmm. um, and I do breastfeeding medicine consults. So I'm the only breastfeeding medicine specialist in Chicago. Um, and so, um, you know, what I'm able to do is more of the complicated um, breastfeeding consults, um, you know, for families who are struggling with breastfeeding. And Kelly? So like Amber, I am located in Chicago and I do work with clients in Chicago in person, but I also am able to work with clients around the globe virtually. In fact, I'm now working with a family in Singapore. So if you want to learn more about uh, my services, just head to my website. It's Kelly Murray Sleep, and that's K-E-L-L-Y-M-U-R-R-A-Y sleep.com. And you can go and learn more about my philosophy, my services, as well as book a complimentary 15-minute discovery call where I will learn more about your situation, be able to explain to you why you're seeing what you're seeing, give you some tips on how you can turn the situation around and discuss um, possibly working together. I feel like I can almost hear the sigh of relief on the other end of this from all the moms who are listening. Now they have the tools and the knowledge to proceed when it comes to dealing with their babies and sleep. It is such a conundrum that we all face. We ask everyone around us and it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's literature. There's, there's so many um, resources out there that we get confused at, as to how to really deal with our baby and sleep issues um, for the whole family. And both of you have answered all of our questions so wonderfully um, and so thoroughly that I think we have just what we need to, to take the next step. Thank you. It's a pleasure um, chatting with you today. And I hope that we provided moms with um, a lot of great information that they can digest and decide what's best for their family. Because that's what matters at the end of the day is doing what you feel is best for your family. That's Total Mom Sense.